Old Pilot's Plane Tales, the S to Z of aviation. The end of the alphabet is nigh, with a Z, not a Z, heaving into view. So let us continue with S. S is for Synchropter. For those with an interest in the syncopated synchronicity of the scything surfaces that support the schizophrenic silliness of synchronized circulating choppers, we need look no further than the Fletner double rotor. I guess we've all seen helicopters tragically beat themselves to death when the little spinny thing at the back gives up the ghost and Newton's third law of motion takes over. In response to the big spinning rotor on top, without the stabilizing effect of the tail rotor, a helicopter's fuselage will succumb to reaction torque and start spinning in the opposite direction, usually with very sad consequences. Anton Fletner saw an alternative to this configuration which involved a pair of rotor heads fixed side by side with the main shafts tilted outwards in an open V shape. The two pairs of rotors mesh and overlap, but their gearboxes are synchronized to maintain a 90 degree phase offset, which keeps the blades from touching. The yawing motion normally created by a tail rotor is generated by adjusting the pitch of both rotors in opposite directions to generate uncompensated torque. The advantages of a double rotor are that all the power goes to create lift and none has to be diverted to the tail rotor. Neither is there the complication of the shaft and gearbox required for that. Also, the increase in rotor area from a dual rotor system means the same load can be carried with less power. The increased rotor area has the disadvantage of reducing the cruise speed and there is obviously more complexity required in the gearbox construction. The other main concern is the decapitation of those approaching a flattener design. Because of the angled rotor shafts, the blades come very close to the ground on either side of the helicopter, which requires great caution when approaching. T is for T. Some may think that it's Avgas or Jet A that drives an aircraft, but certainly in most countries, it's T. Now I fully understand the attraction of coffee, but finding good coffee on an aircraft is rarer than hen's teeth, or a decent airliner beginning with B. Most concoctions are made with instant granules, and no matter how fancy, it just doesn't make the grade. Coffee machines on aircraft do exist. Indeed, my beloved A340-600 had one that brewed espresso and even had the milk frother to go with it. To be fair on the poor crew who reluctantly agreed to make the captain a cappuccino, frothing the milk took forever and the mug had to be held up in place under the nozzle for an arm-aching length of time. What's more, for it all to be hot, the mug had to be preheated to at least a thousand degrees centigrade. 
The best solution was I found my wonderful stylish Caflano classic coffee maker. Taking up only a little room in my flight bag, it was a combined insulated mug, steel filter, ceramic bean grinder and hot water pourer all in one and made the most wonderful drip coffee in a trice. All that was needed was a handful of coffee beans and a short break from the controls. Tea, on the other hand, is the perfect option for the pilot's beverage. Despite its fine flavour, messing up a cup of tea is surprisingly hard. Having said that, I know of a very large country west of me by a few thousand miles where it's nigh on impossible to find a decent cuppa. British cabin crew are well versed in the ways of creating this brew in an airliner, despite the water temperature being lower to boil at the reduced cabin altitude, and it invariably arrived in great shape. Hats off to the Japanese crew for their ability to make a fine green tea as well, even if it didn't come with the full tea ceremony, but few were able to bring themselves to brew a strong tea from traditional black leaves. Their efforts usually tasted like dishwater, but learn your crew's strengths and never ask for a cup of Earl Grey from the Oriental crew or green tea from a Yorkshire lass. U is for up. There are many ups in aviation. It is, after all, a game of ups and downs, but we generally prefer the ups. Going up usually requires a clearance from those wonderful people who sit in dark corners, apparently talking to themselves, and that's just in their spare time. The rest of their sad lives is spent talking to pilots, and a good proportion of their time is spent letting aircraft go up. This is expressed in different ways around the world, which is a little surprising. For example, in Europe, permission to go up is usually given as climb, flight level, blah de blah Other countries insist on adding and maintain. For example, climb and maintain flight level, blah de blah As if we might only give our assigned flight level a glancing blow and then rocket off to some other height just to be difficult. Yet others insist on sending us to an altitude, something long forbidden elsewhere, since to is indistinguishable from to and presents a possible confusion. Pilot's discretion is something else that can't be relied on, since the cockpit is frequently a place of gossip and various goings-on particularly about those not present at the time, and a juicy way to fill the long hours. In the context of up, however, being granted pilot's discretion for a climb clearance means that it can be done whenever the pilot wants. Being given a climb at pilot's discretion is often a source of great amusement, as some pilots, no names, no pack drill, will test the patience of a controller by using their discretion to stay exactly where they are until, eventually, the quavering voice at the other end of the speaking tube demands that they climb immediately. Up often comes in other parts of conversations with our illustrious controllers, but usually just after we release the transmit switch, when up is usually said with feeling, followed by the word yours.
Apart from taking the machine up, there are plenty of ups to deal with on the flight deck, even the one that accompanies shut. Anything that goes down will usually be preceded by an up. The flaps ring a bell, but usually only when oversped, and their final position when cleaning up is to up. The gear is another which brings me to the famous story of the captain who, during the takeoff, looks over to his glum first officer and says, Cheer up! Whereupon he absent-mindedly raised the undercarriage handle. V is for V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-V-
Allison went on to have an auxiliary supercharger fitted, and whilst it lacked the refinement and compactness of the Merlin, it was used in the Bell P63 and the P82 series. Other V12s, such as the Argus AS411, the de Havilland Gypsy 12, the Isotta Francini Gamma, the Ranger V770, and the Walter Sequita never matched the Allison or the Rolls-Royce products, but the Daimler-Benz DB600 series certainly did. Using advanced direct fuel injection, it had excellent fuel economy and an automatically clutched variable supercharger fixed to a barometric device that could automatically and smoothly deliver extra power as required. Fitted to the Messerschmitt BF109 and BF110, it gave them excellent performance and it was only the materials shortages, such as the lack of ball bearings, nickel and cobalt for the valves, that gave it reliability and performance issues later in the war. W is for wing. There is a wing design called the W wing. It was a design proposed by one of my favourite aircraft companies, even though they worked for the other side, Blomenvoss. Ever since, as a kid, I built my Airfix model of the Blomenvoss lopsided BV-141 with the fuselage on one side of the wing and the cockpit on the other, I loved their off-the-wall ideas. Their jet-powered, swept-wing bomber had wings that reversed the sweep direction halfway along the span, literally in the shape of a W apparently to counter the problems of aeroelasticity so that the outer portion of the wing would compensate for any bending that occurred to the inner part. From a personal point of view, I preferred their M version of the design, but at that time I think they were just throwing stuff at the wall to see what would stick. Looking through the history of aircraft design, there are so many wacky ways to set up your wings, it would be wrong of me not to mention just a few. Their names bring a smile to my face, like the inverted sesquiplane on the Fiat CR1, the parasol wing, the quadruple plane used in the Armstrong Whitworth FK-10, the cruciform wing found on many missiles, the annular box wing found on the Bleriot III and the circular flat annular wing made by Lee Richards. Others were test wings to expand our knowledge, like the forward-swept and variable geometry oblique wing aircraft that NASA trialled and the telescopic wing that could vary its aspect ratio in flight and used on the FS-29 TF glider, and I've only touched on a few. X is for X-plane. Yes, I've talked about the use of plane to describe the wonderful craft that we fly in, but across the pond they have their own rules, and actually the X-planes sound rather cool. X-planes were the generation of research aircraft built as a joint programme between the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA, later to become NASA, and the United States Army Air Force, later to become the United States Air Force. And they were experimental aircraft that started with the Bell X-1 and moved forward through many remarkable designs 
that were to accomplish many firsts at their base Muroc Air Force Base, another later to become Edwards Air Force Base. The X-1 was, as I'm sure you know, the first aircraft to break the sound barrier, but the X-planes went on to break many other speed and altitude barriers to prove concepts such as variable wing sweep to implement exotic alloys and propulsion innovations. Some were well publicised, but others progressed in secret, such as the X-16, a spy plane that never really got going after the purchase of a licence to build the Martin RB-57 Cambra, the British-designed English electric aircraft. Most X-planes never got into production. They were there to test, evaluate and learn from. Why is for Y service, Chicksands Priory? In the past, I've talked a lot about my father, but very little about my mother. It's partly because, like many in the war, she didn't tell us lads much about her wartime service in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. But I have a few clues from her old Air Force napkin ring, an essential thing if you didn't want to have someone else's eggy stains on your linen. The hallmarks show it as a London piece, made in 1935 by Edward Barnard and Sons, a silversmith still in business today. Engraved on the ring is a record of her wartime service, including her training by the GPO at the Wireless Telegraphy School in Nottingham, where she learned to receive and transmit Morse code. As one of the top students, from there she was posted to Y service. Such was the secrecy that none of the WAF personnel were told what they were doing there as they maintained a silent watch on the enemies of our country. They often referred to the Y service as, Why are we doing this? In fact, the Y service was covertly listening to German high command radio traffic extracting call signs and frequencies, and passing on their messages to Bletchley Park, the famous decoding centre where the German Enigma code was broken. Amongst the tall aerials and in hidden bunkers, Chicksands communicated with the British network of agents behind enemy lines, using coded seasonal greetings, trivial-sounding messages, and even poetry, to disguise what was going on. Z is for the many Zs, or Zs if you insist, that I pushed up from crew rest on the A340's cosy bunks and occasionally from the captain's chair. And with that, I'll leave you to contemplate your own aviation alphabet. I wonder what you might come up with. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. If you enjoy listening to Plane Tales, then why not leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice, and perhaps let a few friends know on social media. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>